Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. Today, the Great Book's path leads us to two titans of the ancient world, Plato and Aristotle. We discuss reading and grapple with some of the difficulties of interpreting ancient texts. Jeff tries his best to overcome the intuitive responses of his mind as we try to parse the nuance of a regressive framing that offends our modern sensibilities. And we both attempt to relate to Plato and Aristotle from the novice's point of view, gleaning what wisdom we can in our attempt to make sense of some of the great thinking that has led us to today. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, Boxing Aristotle. beginning of this great books 10-year reading plan, which we decided to start doing last year. And we're now really just kind of officially getting into it. And as I was doing the reading for today, uh, before we discussed it, I was thinking about this idea of reading in general and was wondering, you know, why do you read? I think I read for a way different reason than most other people. I don't think I enjoy reading like people enjoy reading. I don't necessarily love books. Oh, well, let me rephrase that. I love books, but not in the same way other people love the reading of books. A good example is I hate suspense. When I'm reading a suspense book, I want to know the end because I want to see how the book is leading towards that end. I don't. The feeling of suspense that I have while reading is makes me very anxious and annoyed. And it doesn't make me want to keep reading that book. It actually makes me want to put it down. I'd rather know what's coming and watch how it unfolds. That's funny because I remember years ago I had recommended to you to read Game of Thrones way before there was a TV show. And then when there was a TV show, I remember you started, I think, watching the TV show and you were asking me, is this going to happen? And, what's, and the idea to me of spoiling the plot, I, it was hard for me to do it. And you never seemed to mind. You always wanted to know where it was going. And, and for me, and I guess maybe this speaks to the reason why, one of the reasons I read and why I've always said I, I love reading is I just love the story. I can get so swept up in it when I'm reading fiction and, and I don't want to know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I want to see how the story develops, but in a naive way, in the sense that I, I don't try to make really predictions or anything. I'm just turning pages as fast as I can and, and reading. And that's, I think, when I get swept up in reading the most. That's the kind of reading that I love, as opposed to nonfiction reading or even more difficult fiction where I have to think more as I'm reading it to get something out of it. Because I think you loved, you enjoyed reading when you were younger too, right? Yeah, I've been reading as long as I can really remember. I never struggled to read or found it to be burdensome or anything like that. I, I basically read books because I liked reading them. See, and I hated reading until I was 17 or 18, until we started hanging out. I hated reading. I would purposely do whatever I could to not read. I would try and pretend I read when I was in a school. I'd never read the books for school. Well, I read Bo Knows Bo because I loved Bo Jackson. That was one of the first books I read cover to cover. I read the Bob Dylan biography, No Direction Home, which led me to On the Road. And On the Road by Jack Kerouac messes with the novel. It tries to do something different with the novel because it's that stream of consciousness. And as I was reading that, it was the first thing that clicked in my head that reading is so connected to thinking and this larger time frame that we're involved in as a human, this larger discussion. And so On the Road was like, oh, I like this 
but not necessarily because of the reading, but because of the ideas behind the reading. Right. And what it meant in the larger scheme of things, which coincided with our friendship and various other things happening in my life that made me spiral into somebody who, again, I don't love reading, but I love engaging in the thought processes and ideas that come only through reading. So you would say that reading then is not necessarily a good in and of itself, but it leads to something good. Yes. And that's what you like. So you read because it's a means to an end, not necessarily for the pure enjoyment of reading in and of itself. Yeah. If I'm, will, if I'm hearing you correctly. The enjoyment in reading for me is the thinking and growing. So uh, I think you sent me an article a while back about how we are doing too much skim reading nowadays. So the op-ed, Skim Reading is the New Normal, The Effect on Society is Profound, by Marianne Wolf, was published by The Guardian in 2018 and posits that, and I'm paraphrasing here, research surfacing in many parts of the world cautions that essential deep reading processes may be under threat as we move into digital-based modes of reading, and furthermore, that a series of studies indicate that the new normal in reading is skimming. Uh, in that article, I love that article, it discusses how our brains are not constructed to read. We have a natural language center in our brain, so our brains are made to learn language and interact orally, but our brain does not necessarily have a reading pathway. But through the years of deep reading, the reading pathway has developed in our brain. And along that pathway, we have critical thinking, creative thinking, and all these other amazing aspects of thinking. So I read to strengthen that pathway, I guess, is the best way to put it. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I never really thought about it that way. And, it, and it's funny because I would never even think about the concept of becoming a reader because that's not an experience that I had in my life. I never became a reader. I learned to read and then I read. And I don't remember learning to read and I don't remember ever not reading. So for me, I don't think about it in those terms. But I definitely feel like over my life, I've become a much better reader. I'm able to read things that I was not able to read before. And I could stick with something until it eventually clicks. I know there's something in that book, especially with classics. Uh, there's got to be something there. And I want to dig it out. And, and I'm at the point in my life where I can do that, uh, which is kind of interesting because I really struggled with some of the reading we were doing for this segment of the great books. Yeah, so we just read two works by Aristotle, portions of two works by Aristotle. We read book one of ethics and book one of politics, and we read books one and two of Plato's The Republic. And what I found myself doing while reading Aristotle's politics was I found myself being very pissed off at Aristotle because a large part of politics is him defending, well, not defending the practice, but looking closely at the practice of slavery as something that is natural and should happen. And as I was reading that, I texted you that there are certain people who, if I ever met, I would like to punch them in the face. And Aristotle was joining that list. And I think what started to happen there is we ended up having, or in my mind, I ended up thinking about not just why I read, but then how I read. And System 1 and System 2 came into my mind. Yep. System 1 is more of an unconscious or subconscious absorption of things. It's the natural automatic processes of things. And that, that's me reading Aristotle and thinking, this guy's a jerk and I want to punch him in the face, not just because he was defending the practice of slavery, but also because his syntax is slightly convoluted at times and all over, and it takes a while to absorb all that. But then I think what we're realizing in this process of reading these Greek books is you have to get into the system too, where the conscious thought, where you start to think that Aristotle is writing this 2,500 years ago. We get a little loose with dates in this one. It's probably closer to 2,350, but who's counting? And he has a completely different society around him. And this is where you actually started to do some research because you were struggling with politics yourself, I believe. Yeah, so this is how little I knew. I, I picked up politics first randomly. I had politics and ethics, and I could have read either one. I had finished reading the Plato, and I just picked up politics. I don't know why. Maybe it was on the top of the pile or, or whatever, but I did no research whatsoever in terms of understanding and which one I should read first, if, if any. Um, I know now that probably it would have 
made sense to start with with the ethics and then move into the politics. But I'm reading it and I'm making no sense of it whatsoever. I, I didn't understand it. So according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Aristotle's writings tend to present formidable difficulties to his novice readers. To begin, he makes heavy use of unexplained technical terminology, and his sentence structure can at times prove frustrating. This helps explain why students who turn to Aristotle after first being introduced to the supple and mellifluous prose on display in Plato's dialogues often find the experience frustrating. I'm reading it, and I I don't get it. It's very dense, uh, the way that he writes is very precise, and every sentence is, it's like a math equation followed by another math equation. It feels like a proof, and you need to really understand this one to get this one to get this one, and then each paragraph builds on each paragraph, and before I knew it, I'm, I'm knee-deep in this um, justification for why some people are born to be slaves, and it's okay for them to be slaves. And I knew that I was missing something. I felt like I was missing something, and, and that's when I kind of started digging in. And what I really wanted to be careful about, and the, and the thing that makes me worried when I read this kind of stuff is, I don't want to read a little bit and think that I've got it. This is related to that whole concept of the Dunning-Kruger effect, the idea that you learn a little bit about a thing and then you think that you have some mastery over it. And it's actually almost a worse position to be in than where you started because you feel like you're not a novice anymore. And now you start trying to draw conclusions, make judgments or assume knowledge that you don't actually have to take it back to uh, Socrates. And I really didn't want to do that. That's one of the reasons why after I I read it and then I saw your text and your reaction and and I really wanted to try to understand the bigger picture, gain some more context. And so one of the things that I think I'm grappling with and and we're going to grapple with, and one of the reasons why we're even doing all of this reading that we're doing and all this talking that we've been doing and and the whole Beautiful Illusions project is, is really to gain a better understanding and try to make sure that we have at least enough context or, or nuance, I know is something that you've been talking about recently. And we, we talked about that a bit in the Frankenstein episode, just in order to recognize that there, there's some more there and maybe withhold that judgment. And as I went through the politics and then I read the ethics and then I did some research, I, I did realize that, yes, a little more context did help me to understand that a little bit better. And I mentioned the Sean Carroll quotation at the end of Frankenstein, and that started to click in my head because he talks about the informal absorption from your surrounding culture, um, which I, I'm starting to term as like passive absorption, yep. versus the rigorous personal reflection, uh, which is like an active choice, how you're absorbing something. Quote, the pressing human questions we have about our lives depend directly on our attitudes towards the universe at a deeper level. For many people, those attitudes are adopted rather informally from the surrounding culture rather than arising out of rigorous personal reflection. Each new generation of people doesn't invent the rules of living from scratch. We inherit ideas and values that have evolved over vast stretches of time. This is my favorite myth about Aristotle. And I think it's a myth. Uh, well, you can't prove it. So it's, you know, it has a myth to it. But I heard it uh, probably in college. There's the idea that Aristotle, because of compounding knowledge, because we keep learning more and more and consider the amount of knowledge you can currently access on the Internet, no person can possibly hold all that knowledge in their brain. Well, there's the idea that Aristotle was the last person who had all the knowledge that humanity could possibly have in his brain because he was so studied and because the mountain he was absorbing was smaller. And then from him on, it just became too large to absorb. Okay, so I looked into this one a little bit. And while there's a lot of fun speculation about who was the last know-it-all, the tales all end up being a bit apocryphal in nature. Yet there's no doubt that Aristotle is as good a candidate as any. As prolific a polymath as ever lived, he literally founded many fields of study as well as a school dedicated to their pursuit. Inscribed over 200 works, studied physical sciences such as anatomy, astronomy, embryology, geography, geology, meteorology, physics, and zoology. Wrote philosophy on aesthetics, ethics, government, metaphysics, politics, economics, psychology, rhetoric, and theology. And still managed to find time for education, foreign customs, literature, and poetry. And then I'm thinking, so this guy's arguing for slavery, but I'm just some guy reading this. And this is Aristotle. So there's got to be something more to this. So this is where I go from the passive absorption, the system one, 
to the system to, all right, I'm going to get over my urge to punch Aristotle in the face, and I'm going to try to figure out what he's actually saying. And so what is he actually saying in politics? So I think when you look at politics, I'm going to just read the first couple of lines. Every state is, as we see, a sort of partnership, and every partnership is formed with a view to some good. Since all the actions of all mankind are done with a view to what they think to be good, it is therefore evident that while all partnerships aim at some good, the partnership that is the most supreme of all and includes all the others does so most of all and aims at the most supreme of all goods. And this is the partnership entitled the state, the political association. So in this quote, he's basically laying out this idea that the political association is seeking the supreme good for all the people that are affiliated with it, right? So all the constituents. And here's the reason why now I know that reading ethics before politics would have been useful is that in ethics, he spends all this time developing this idea of the supreme good being happiness. And then he lays out, he kind of explains what he means by happiness and what happiness could potentially potentially be. So in politics, he starts to, in a very technical way, he's actually describing how he sees these systems being set up so that they can achieve this end of this supreme good of happiness. And then what you realize is that he's using the relationship between the slave and the slave owner to start to look at rulers versus the people they rule. And what he's doing is he's starting in the smallest, most basic form of one very simple relationship, the slave versus the slave owner. He mentions other relationships through the course of this first book, the father to the child, and then the husband to the wife, which again, we see as backwards thinking. And from the smaller relationship, uh, which is what we get the most of in book one, we assume that he's going to build into the bigger relationship of what I believe he says is the village, and then into the state. Yeah. At that time, the state is essentially a city. It's not the state the way we understand it today. It's, you know, Athens was a city and Sparta was a city and that the city or the polis, P-O-L-I-S, which is where we get politics from, referring to the city, which would have been the functional unit of politics back at that time. So my system one is critiquing this ignorant man who thinks slavery is right is actually the beginning of modern thinking. And it's this deep examination of rulers and trying to make for the best of possible societies. And when you turn off that system one and stop that subjective experience only judging this, you understand that you're reading somebody who's one of the smartest men in our history. Right. And really, if human civilizations and human thinking has made any progress over that time, we should see some regressive aspects whenever we look back, because if Aristotle had it all figured out 2,400 years ago, there would have been nothing left to do after that. So the idea that now we look back and we see some regressive thinking, it's really not that shocking. I think what's ironic, though, is When we talk about system one and system two, essentially the justification that Aristotle lays out for why slavery is acceptable is essentially that there are certain people who have this ability to reason fully and certain people who don't. And amongst those who don't have the ability to reason fully would be anyone who's basically not Greek, uh, anyone who's a woman or and anyone who's born to be a slave. So he's basically saying that Some people, it is in their nature that they are born slaves because they do not have this capacity for reason, which we would now kind of put under system two, right? System two thinking. And he's saying that in that case, it's actually better for those people to be ruled by a master because they can never achieve this true happiness or this true supreme good on their own because he defines this supreme good as being able to use your reason the reasonable part of your mind, although he refers to it as a soul, in order to practice all these virtues that lead to a good life, which is really kind of funny because he has no concept of natural human rights or anything like that. It's just he's talking basically about Greek men when he's describing what's going on in his politics. And I'm just going to conjecture based on my own experience with other great thinkers in our past. While we see it as backward thinking, 
it's Aristotle. This is probably forward thinking for the time because he's trying to see the relationship between the master and the slave. And he also, at certain points, says that there's bad slavery. There's slavery where enslaving Greeks because they have reason is bad. And that's probably like the same with Jefferson saying all men are created equal. That men simply means 21-year-old white property owners. But there's this idea that's still a step forward. And this is probably also with, I don't have knowledge of the full Greek culture, a step forward. In ancient Athens, slaves were not citizens, and they considerably outnumbered male citizens. Greeks sometimes enslaved other Greeks in wars, but most slaves in Athens were foreigners. Slavery was hereditary, and freeing one's slaves was rare. This extensive slave underclass gave the citizen elite time for leisure and contemplation, which was important for political participation in the Athenian democracy. For more on Aristotle's views on slavery and why it was natural and necessary for the good of the state, see the links in the show notes. From today's vantage point, we can firmly say that there's no such thing as a natural slave and no morally acceptable justification for slavery. So I guess, in that sense, Aristotle clearly didn't know it all. A humble reminder to us mere mortals that even the smartest people can be badly misguided and that future generations are likely to be horrified at some of the views we hold and justify today. And then there's another irony uh, when we jump into ethics, which we both enjoyed way more than politics, where he actually criticizes us for criticizing him, where he says, again, each man judges correctly those matters with which he is acquainted. It is of these that he is a competent critic. To criticize a particular subject, therefore, a man must have been trained in that subject. To be a good critic generally, he must have had an all-around education. Yeah, that, I mean, I wrote next to that from the Bob Dylan uh, song, The Times They Are Changing, don't criticize what you can't understand. And this is always a concern of mine and something that I talk about all the time because I, I feel like nowadays in our modern culture, you hear a phrase like, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And let's do it in a Socratic way. Well, what do you mean by an opinion? What is an opinion? And Is everyone really entitled to an opinion? Maybe everyone is entitled to an opinion, but how much work are you doing to inform that opinion? And if you're doing no work, what does that opinion really even mean? So if we take a a critique to be an opinion and we say, I have no knowledge, like for instance, I have no knowledge of Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, beyond whatever survives in books and video games and movies and you know, whatever just comes through somehow in, in the in the popular culture. I haven't dug into it too deeply. And for me to critique Aristotle seems to be engaging in something that for me is not going to be very productive because I just don't know enough to even critique him. It would be like me critiquing Yo-Yo Ma's cello playing style. I have no idea why he is as good as he is because I just don't have enough base level knowledge. And this harkens back to that whole Dunning-Kruger concept where I think we're very tempted all the time to gain a little bit of knowledge about a thing and assume that that little bit of knowledge gives us way more ability to accurately critique or develop an opinion than we actually have. And then we don't recognize it. And then we hold ourselves to that. And it it becomes very hard once we anchor to that opinion or belief to move off of it. Yeah. And I think this is what I'm going to term system one thinking about culture, where we allow for this passive absorption of culture. What's beautiful is that Aristotle is critiquing this system one absorption of culture. Uh, And that's what I fell into when I was very annoyed by politics. And that's what I think as a active participant in our culture, we need to try and do more often. That was just a key quotation that we both found funny because it happened to fit both our mindsets as we were reading politics and he has it in ethics. And then ethics becomes a very interesting piece where he examines What is the true good for all man? Yeah. And so he basically comes down to this idea that it's happiness. He says, happiness, therefore, being found to be something final and self-sufficient is the end at which all actions aim. If then the function of man is the active exercise of the soul's faculties in conformity with rational principle and say that the function of a good man is to perform these activities well and rightly, And if a function is well-performed when it is performed in accordance with its own proper excellence, from these premises it follows that the good of man is the active exercise of his soul's faculties in conformity with excellence or virtue. Or, 
if there be several human excellences or virtues in conformity with the best and most perfect among them. Moreover, to be happy takes a complete lifetime, for one swallow does not make spring, nor does one fine day. And similarly, one day or a brief period of happiness does not make a man supremely blessed and happy. Based on criteria he lays out, Aristotle first rules out some other options as the supreme end, such as pleasure or honor, before settling on eudaimonia or happiness. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, scholars, in fact, dispute whether eudaimonia is best rendered as happiness or flourishing or living well. Eudaimonia is achieved, according to Aristotle, by fully realizing our natures, by actualizing to the highest degree of our human capacities. And neither our nature nor our endowment of human capacities is a matter of choice for us. Still, as Aristotle frankly acknowledges, people will consent without hesitation to the suggestion that happiness is our best good even while differing materially about how they understand what happiness is. So while seeming to agree, people in fact disagree about the human good. Consequently, it is necessary to reflect on the nature of happiness. Regardless, it seems clear that Aristotle was looking at a concept more akin to Maslow's self-actualization over a lifetime than to the state of mind associated with moments of happiness experienced throughout our days, or happiness as we commonly understand it today. And again here, I think when he uses the word soul, it aligns more closely to what we talk about now when we use the word mind. But he's basically saying that there are many different ways potentially for us to be happy, but the supreme good is for us to rationally pursue that happiness. And he says earlier, right at the beginning, he says that it is the job of the state, it is the job of those in politics to try and make for the most happiness for all people. And every time I read that, I kept thinking to uh, Jefferson's pursuit of happiness, which is in our Declaration of Independence. And then Aristotle goes into an examination of happiness, various forms of happiness, very deeply thought out. What you start to understand is the connection between ethics and politics and how this examination of what happiness is and how it is the supreme good is what is supposed to drive our politicians. And then in politics, the examination of the ruler and the ruled and how that relationship unfolds is a continuation of this thinking. And you start to get a larger appreciation for this man who knew everything there was to know. And it starts to make sense. He has a clearly a thought process going through his head and through pages of writing that's building this larger idea that's hoping to make his culture, human culture as a whole, better moving forward, getting to a better place. Yeah, well, he's kind of like the ultimate system two thinker in that he's trying to be deliberative and say, Okay, here's all these things out in the world that seem to be true. Let's examine them and let's hear all the arguments that people make related to these concepts. And then let's try to figure out which ones are the ones that are the most true. In his Metaphysics, Aristotle states that human beings began to do philosophy as they do now because of wonder. At first, because they wondered about the strange things right in front of them, and then later, advancing little by little, because they came to find greater things puzzling. Human beings philosophize because they find aspects of their experience puzzling. The sorts of puzzles, or eporii, we encounter in thinking about the universe and our place within it tax our understanding and induce us to philosophize. When encountered with puzzles, such as the ones that typically exist at the end of many of Plato's Socratic dialogues, Aristotle's pragmatic method was to begin philosophizing by trusting in his well-trained perceptual and cognitive faculties, looking out at the world and laying out the phenomena, or the things appearing to be the case, and then also collecting the endoxa, or the most credible opinions handed down regarding the specific puzzles that he was investigating. Then he would explore the multiple opinions and see what wisdom could be gleaned, often seeking the middle ground between extreme positions. By employing this method, Aristotle was practicing a sort of empirical philosophy, almost scientific in approach, as opposed to purely relying on his own theorizing or logic. So he says, just to relate back to the point you started making before, he says, therefore, the good of man must be the end of the science of politics. For even though it be the case that the good is the same for the individual and for the state, nevertheless, the good of the state is manifestly a greater and more perfect good, both to attain and to preserve. 
to secure the good of one person only is better than nothing, but to secure the good of a nation or a state is a nobler and more divine achievement. This then being its aim, our investigation is in a sense the study of politics. So he's basically equating this study of the supreme good or human happiness with politics because he's saying that's the whole point of politics, to enable this to happen. And he's really trying to develop a theory of politics or you know political science that is going going to be something that humans can use as a foundation to build the type of society that's going to actually enable this supreme good to be achieved. And when you listen to the modern multidisciplinary thinkers, these brilliant men of today and brilliant women of today, it's the same discussion we're currently engaging in. You hear Sam Harris saying how we should try to find the society that has the least suffering for all people involved. We should try and find the best way. How can we use our current understanding of science and various other things to find the best, they're using the word moral, the supreme happiness for all people? We're still in this discussion that Aristotle starts. And really what Aristotle is doing here is expanding or commenting or speaking to um, something that his teacher, Plato, was doing in The Republic, which is probably one of Plato's most influential works. In The Republic, uh, where Aristotle examines goodness and happiness in ethics, uh, Plato takes a deep dive into the concept of justice. And it begins with a Socratic uh, questioning where they're trying to define what this concept of justice is. Socrates is asking uh, Cephalus, who's an older man, you know, well, what is your definition of justice? And Socrates does what Socrates does. And he asks him this question and that question. And he proves that, like, well, no, it can't be that. And then his son, Polemarchus, picks up the conversation and the same kind of thing happens. And that's where they have that conversation about, I think justice is being good to your friends and harming your enemies. And then Socrates basically says, well, sometimes you can choose friends that are not the best people. So by helping them, you're actually doing harm. And he, he, you know, he disproves that. And that's when uh, Thrasymachus, the sophist, basically jumps in and is like, oh, I have a definition of justice. And he says, justice is nothing other than the advantage of the stronger. All right. So the advantage of the stronger. So now this sets up the whole rest of book one, where now Socrates is basically arguing against Thrasymachus's claim that justice is nothing but the, what was it again? The advantage of the stronger. The advantage of the stronger. So what does he mean by that, do you think? So to me, and he kind of lays it out as he's putting this forward, to me, he's saying that justice isn't actually what our modern concept of the idea of being fair and just, but justice is the leaders who are in charge of everything use it as their advantage They pretend to dole it out to the people below them, and that's all it simply is. Yeah, and he's basically, I think, also saying that the idea is that justice essentially hampers you from getting ahead if you're going to follow its precepts the way it's normally thought of. And so for those that are willing to be unjust, those are the ones that accrue the power and get ahead, and those are the ones that become the leaders and the ones that are in charge. And so essentially he's almost making an argument for injustice being a virtue. And I think Socrates kind of hangs him up on that because he says, if wisdom is a virtue and nobody who has wisdom would do something that was unjust, well, then injustice can't be a virtue. And therefore, if you're practicing, you know, and it's that whole thing, again, that, that Socrates is doing. Those that are willing to be unjust, that are the ones who have all the power in the world. And so there's no real good that's going to come from you being a just person. And that's what Socrates basically breaks down. And so by the end, he does break that down essentially, but he doesn't, as Socrates usually doesn't, he doesn't make any claim to know what justice is either. And that's kind of where book one ends. One of the funniest parts about book one is Thrasymachus's comments back to Socrates because he kind of gets sarcastic with him. He says, oh, this is just what you're going to do. You're just going to ask me questions to try and rip apart my own point, but you're never going to lay out your own point. Because it's kind of funny as the reader to see somebody saying that because you can feel that while you're reading sometimes, like, oh, Socrates is going to rip this apart by continuing to ask questions. And Thrasymachus is fully aware of this process and in some cases almost half-heartedly doesn't fully engage because he doesn't believe Socrates is ever going to lay out his own 
theory of what justice actually is. And so then when book one ends, it kind of shifts. So Thrasymachus isn't the main interlocutor anymore. Now it becomes Glaucon and Glaucon's uh, brother. Adamantus. Adamantus, who in actual history were the brothers of Plato, um, who's the one that's obviously, you know, writing all of this. And now they are not satisfied with Socrates' argument thus far. And they say, well, you know, there's, there's two other things that we need to think about here. One is that there are these categories of goods. There are things that are good because in and of themselves they are good now just to do them, you know, like joy is a good. Or there are things that are not necessarily good in and of themselves but lead to a good that we would we would practice. Or there's things that are good now and also lead to a good. And we want you to prove that justice is one of those things, that it's good in and of itself, and it also leads to good things down the road. And that's kind of the challenge that they lay out for him. And then what uh, Socrates ends up starting to do is he starts up a thought experiment when he starts building this ideal city and putting in all the parts of the city and slowly looking at how justice happens in this ideal city. And I'm assuming because it's called The Republic, this is the continuation of the book. We've only read the first two books. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the difficulty of his task helps to explain why Socrates takes the curious route through the discussion of civic justice and civic happiness. Socrates can assume that a just city is always more successful or happy than an unjust city. Furthermore, if Socrates can then explain how a just city is always more successful and happy than an unjust city by giving an account of civic justice and civic happiness, he will have a model to propose for the relation between personal justice and flourishing. Socrates' strategy depends on an analogy between a city and a person. There must be some intelligible relation between what makes a city successful and what makes a person successful. And then as he gets near the end, he says, No one, whether in poetry or in private conversations, has adequately argued that injustice is the worst thing a soul can have in it and that justice is the greatest good. If you had treated the subject in this way and persuaded us from youth, we wouldn't now be guarding against one another's injustices, but each would be his own best guardian, afraid that by doing injustice, he'd be living with the worst thing possible. So what he's laying out there, I believe that's Socrates speaking, but what he, what's being laid out there is the idea of the hyperreality, the idea that what we passively absorb from our birth might shape the way we are in some way, shape, or form. And I think we know absolutely now, I mean, as, as absolute as we can know anything, I mean, that, yes, our environment that we live in certainly shapes a lot of our beliefs and our behaviors, and it's back to that classic nature-nurture argument. We know that genetics plays a role, and we know that environment plays a role. So how much attention are we actually paying to the environment in which we raise the citizens of our... Uh, our city, our city-state, our state, our political unit. To me, that's where this gets very interesting. So it seems like Socrates is arguing for this concept of uh, justice being good just for the sake of justice, but he doesn't just want to state that because he knows it's going to be torn apart because there's so many arguments against that and what actually happens in this reality. And he has this idea of what if we start training our children to be good? And then later in the piece, as they start to build the different parts of the Republic, he talks about the guardians of the Republic, the people are going to be soldiers. And he talks about how in training these soldiers, they need to have a certain mindset. And in order to create this mindset, they need to very much control what they're teaching these soldiers. So he says, then we must, first of all, it seems, supervise the storytellers. So we need to supervise what's being told to these guardians as they grow up. We'll select their stories whenever they are fine or beautiful and reject them when they aren't. And we'll persuade nurses and mothers to tell their children the ones we have selected, since they will shape their children's souls with stories much more than they shape their bodies by handling them. So the stories that we hear are almost more important than this contact with our mother from birth forward. And they're the things that shape who we are. Yeah. And I naturally read that and I want to take it and run with it and apply it immediately to my concept of, you know, well, these stories that we tell, these fictions are so crucial in our understanding of the world and our perception that we really need to be a lot more thoughtful about them. And this is something that I got into quite a bit when we talked about the two cultures, right? Um, and it's something I 
talk about and think about all the time. You know, what is the role of the art of humanities in our perception of the world? But I, I do think what's what's interesting here is he sets up this system, right, in this perfect city, and he has these three parts. And the reason he's setting this up is because what he wants to do then is compare it on the individual level to the human soul, these three parts. Plato divides his just society into three classes, the producers, the auxiliaries, and the guardians, which he then analogizes to the tripartite soul, which comprises the appetite, the spirit, and the reason. And then apparently use that, although, like you said, we haven't actually read this, to somehow argue that justice is a good in and of itself when all these things are in harmony, but led by the reason, which uh, Aristotle then picks up on in ethics and in his politics as well. And Aristotle says, now on the subject of psychology, some of the teaching current and extraneous discourses is satisfactory and may be adopted here. Namely, that the soul consists of two parts, one irrational and the other capable of reason. Whether these two parts are really distinct in the sense that the parts of the body or of any other divisible whole are distinct, or whether though distinguishable and thought as two, they are inseparable in reality, like the convex and concave sides of a curve, is a question of no importance for that matter in hand. And what Aristotle just laid out, as I said when we discussed apology, is he essentially laid out system one and system two. He's hypothesizing that our brain is split into these two parts, and he later discusses how they may function together with each other, where one of them is the reason, and the other one, he calls it the irrational, but is the more automatic. And this is where I slap my own hand for critiquing and thinking with my own system one. And I'm like, holy cow, Aristotle and Socrates through Plato is predicting the concept of the hyperreality and how quickly our system ones are created by the passive absorption of culture when we're children and how maybe we should think about this. He's in a thought experiment. He's in an ideal world, but he's laying this idea down. Shouldn't we think about the stories we're telling our children? Yeah. How much does that brainwash them into a certain line of thinking? Couldn't we make it better where we brainwash them into a line of thinking where justice is a good thing? Yeah. And then Aristotle goes even further and he says, yes, there is this system one. I doesn't say it exactly like this, but there is this system one and this system two. And we need to think about this as politicians in the way that we create things and function in this system two. And these are the people who should be our leaders. What's funny is he describes almost exactly kind of, not exactly, but he almost describes what happens to you. So when he says, we see that the irrational part, as well as the soul as a whole, is double. One division of it does not share in rational principle at all. The other the seed of the appetites and of desire in general. So he's basically saying the irrational part actually has two parts, the vegetative. Now, we wouldn't really consider that the mind at this point. It's really just what's operating the automatic processes of your body, like your digestion and your growth and all those kinds of things. And then he's saying you have this other part that is the seed of the appetites and of desire and emotions in general. And he's saying that this does, in a sense, participate with the rational part of your mind in the sense that it's subservient to it potentially if you are applying your reason. So, you know, you're giving an example of where you slowed down and you said, okay, wait a minute, I'm reacting this way as I am experiencing these emotions as I'm reading. Let me think about this a little bit more deeply and a little bit more slowly. And maybe there's something more here than what I'm seeing. Right. And so, you know, I don't want to put retroactively these ideas into Aristotle's brain from our privileged position in the future of knowing how the next bunch of years went and where we have gotten to today in our understanding of the brain and the mind and, and neuroscience and all those things. But it, it does seem like he's suggesting here this idea that you have this reasonable mind and this emotional mind that's subconscious processing and that the greatest thing that a human can do is use their reasonable mind to lead a good life. In a sense, he's very in line or he's very comparable to the ideas that Freud ends up coming up with the id and the ego at the very least, where the id is this uh, ball of desire and then the ego is the person supposedly trying to control this desire and I love the way Aristotle thinks about this because I love the idea that we can be more reasonable. But unfortunately, in some of our neuroscience, we're learning that 
Well, not unfortunately. We're learning in our neuroscience that this unconscious or subconscious part of us is controlling a lot of the ship. And it's not necessarily a bad or good thing. It's just something we got to recognize. And the rational is way less in control than we want to believe it's in control. In his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, psychologist Jonathan Haidt characterizes the human mind as a partnership between separate but connected entities using the metaphor of the rider and the elephant. The rider represents all that is conscious and is the director of actions and executor of thought and long-term goals, while the elephant represents all that is automatic and often acts independently of conscious thought. According to Haidt, our problem is that we overemphasize the power and importance of our conscious verbal thinking and neglect the other components of our mind. In his book, he argues that we must improve our understanding of these divisions and learn to let them operate in harmony, not compete for control. As we have these discussions, I know I'm interested in can we do what we're trying to do on an individual level, which is, you know, raise our level of awareness about the inherent issues with our subconscious mind our system one and our system two? And can we do that in a collective way where we recognize that, hey, there's a lot of what we would take as our ingrained beliefs and these things that we have absorbed passively, maybe through culture or through our upbringing, that we should question a little bit more carefully, be a little more humble and understand that a lot of what's going on, a lot of what we would say is our hard and fast belief is really just the post hoc rationalization of our system too, which is now telling a story that we like because it thinks it's in charge when it's not actually fully in charge. And so can we harness that awareness and help to steer us into a better place than maybe where we currently are? Yeah, and I would like to think maybe in our day-to-day lives, we can't stop the intuitiveness of our mind. We cannot stop System 1 from, or should not stop System 1 from making certain decisions because if we were running on System 2 constantly, we'd basically have to eat continuously because the amount of energy that would be used by our brain would be impossible. It would to... also make take way too long to make decisions that would save our lives because we do not want to have to consciously think about every situation we encounter and whether or not this is a thing we should do or shouldn't do. A lot of that happens automatically. But when we're engaging in culture, we should stop and think about this passive absorption every once in a while. For example, we shouldn't just accept the idea that Aristotle is a man who should be punched in the face. (laughs) And we should allow systems two to step in. And for me, in my own example, there are moments where clearly system two can take over in looking at culture and control the beast just a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. And to bring it back to one of the larger points that I want to address through this project is when we look at all of these thinkers from the past, I want to try to understand how their thinking was influential on the thinking that came after it and obviously the thinking that came after that and how we ended up where we are today, culturally, politically, with our way of thinking about the world that we live in. And for me, while There are obviously lots of things that Aristotle starts talking about that we still find value in. One of the things that I think is really interesting is his concept of teleology or this idea that everything has an end or a purpose. And really, he spends all of ethics trying to figure out what is the end of human existence? What is our purpose? And he determines that it is to achieve this um, happiness through applying our rationality and living this uh, civic life, which he then outlays in the politics. I think that that idea that everything has a purpose, uh, everything exists for a reason, it was designed for a purpose. I think that's one of the ideas that still lingers with us today. And while it makes sense for Socrates and Plato and Aristotle to look out at the world and assume there was an end or a purpose to all things in pre-scientific times, they are applying their system to, they are trying to be deliberative, they're trying to be rational, and they are being rational based on the knowledge they have available. It's just that they don't have 
as much knowledge about the world that they live in as we do now today in 2020. We have the benefit of having lived after hundreds of years of scientific discovery about the world we live in that's led to an amazing revolution, not only in terms of the actual world that we live in, in terms of the technology and the civilization that we have built for ourselves, but in terms of our understanding of that world, in terms of understanding fundamental laws of physics and just knowing more about our place in the universe. Um, I think it's interesting to see today how we're still kind of hanging on to that, even though our scientific discovery, our best way of understanding the world at this point that we live in, in terms of the actual natural world, seems to imply that there are no purpose and no ends to things. Our best rational estimate at this point is that there is no meaning to any of it outside that which we give ourselves. The value and the purpose and the meaning that we want to be there externally just really isn't there. So it's up to us to decide what is it that we want to do? What do we want to value? And what do we want our purpose to be both individually and collectively? So just another thing to to think about. What, what influence did Aristotle actually have on all the thought that came after him in terms of this idea that there's this external purpose or end that exists. And in order for our illusion to be beautiful, one of the things we need to do is drop this idea of external meaning and focus more intently on the meaning that we create individually and together in order to move things forward. We want to look at as difficult as that is, you know, how do we align people around that idea without having to appeal to some greater purpose coming from somewhere else? And, you know, admittedly, that doesn't sound like an easy thing to do, and I'm sure it won't be an easy thing to do, but I think it's what's necessary in order to help move humanity forward. Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation, and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org.